Welcome to this week's edition of Honestly Speaking with Tara Setmayer. We're telling the truth in a time of universal deceit is a revolutionary act. So um, a little bit different episode this week because I am actually in Israel, which I'm so excited about. It's an absolutely amazing place. So um, I'm going to, there's a lot to talk about, but I had to pre-record this before I left for Israel. So um, we had an episode this week, but next week I will be talking all about my trip and my experiences there. And um, I'm also there during Hanukkah. So it's uh, an extra special time of the year to be in the Holy Land of Israel. So uh, next week's episode, I will have all the details about that. Also, you can follow me on social media. I will be posting on Instagram, my Instagram stories, pictures and things from that trip. But in the meantime, I have an excellent interview with Max Boot, who wrote the book, The Corrosion of Conservatism, Why I Left the Right. And many of you, I'm sure, have seen Max either on CNN, because he's also a global analyst, global affairs analyst for CNN and a colleague of mine over there. But uh, he's also a prolific tweeter and also a fellow never Trumper who's been very vocal lately about the president's behavior and how unacceptable it is. And not only that, but just how unacceptable the behavior of the Republican Party and stalwarts in the conservative movement have just abdicated their oversight responsibility um, when it comes to Donald Trump and what he's done to the party and the movement. So enjoy my interview with Max Boot. And next week, I will be back with a full episode of Honestly Speaking with an update on my trip to Israel, as well as all the other craziness that continues to go on. Uh, Who knows who'll be indicted by then? (laughs) Who's going to be in jail by then? The Mueller investigation is heating up. Donald Trump is getting more and more manic with his tweets, concerned about Michael Cohen, Jerome Corsi, Roger Stone. Who knows what other shoe's going to drop? And um, it's just pretty unbelievable. Trump denying that he had any business with Russia or anything during the election. And we all knew that was a bunch of bullshit. And uh, look what we found out. Michael Cohen came out and said, yeah, I lied to Congress. Yeah, he was still working on that Trump Tower project well into the 2016 campaign. I've always said follow the money. Um, And... I'm proven to be right. I'm being proven to be right right now. And it's, I don't want to be, but keep paying attention to what's happening. Don't let others tell you that none of this mattered matters, or these are petty crimes or trying to downplay what's going on here. This is significant stuff. And the president of the United States is dead in the middle of it all. It's not a witch hunt. This is very, very real stuff. So on that note, enjoy my interview with, Max Boot, and I will see everybody next week on Honestly Speaking. Thanks so much. So I'm so happy to have um, author Max Boot here with me to talk because we are kindred, never Trump spirits. And um, it, it can be a lonely place at times. 
<laughs> in this day and age. But it's so nice to know that there are other like-minded people out there who haven't lost their freaking minds in the era of Trump. And Max Boot, you are one of them. I find great solace in your commentary and your point of view and your writings. So welcome to Honestly Speaking with Tara. And uh, let, let's, let's, let's kvetch. Sure. Uh, <laughs> that sounds good. And I'm, I'm inspired by your example as well. And I do note that from the midterm elections, it's obvious that we are not alone because there were a lot of moderate Republicans who refused to vote for Democrats and that cost, who refused to vote for the Republican Party, sorry. And that cost the Republicans in the midterm election in places like Arizona in the Senate race. Absolutely. And I was encouraged by that because like you, uh, I have... Um, well, not quite. I haven't completely unregistered as a Republican, but I did vote Democrat for the first time in my life as a protest vote because I felt that the Republican Party has abdicated their responsibility. They've become unrecognizable. And like your book, The Corrosion of Conservatism, uh, I feel like everything that we've believed in as movement conservatives has been perverted by Donald Trump and his minions. So I... I I said, I have no choice. You know, Barbara Comstock wasn't a horrible congresswoman, but she didn't stand up enough to what was going on with Trump. So she had the go-to. I voted against her. And Corey Stewart here in, in Virginia, um, that was a no-brainer. The guy's a racist lunatic. So I had no problem casting a ballot for Tim Kaine, who I may not agree with all of his policies, but he's sane and at least a moral person. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I feel the same way. The first Democrat I ever voted for was Hillary Clinton in 2016. And this year, I voted straight ticket Democratic and urged everybody else to do the same because Republicans were simply not are, are not standing up to Donald Trump, even the ones who are supposedly more moderate, like Barbara Comstock. Right. That's right. We thought that they would be the firewall. And uh, most of them either quit, lost, were defeated, or completely sold out. And uh, that was quite disappointing. The biggest disappointment being uh, Paul Ryan. But we're going to talk about that in a little bit when we start to talk about your book. I want to talk a little bit about some things that have been in the news uh, post midterms. You know, as we were talking just now and say, mentioning how Republicans got their asses handed to them in the suburban areas in, in this country, um, it seems as though the, the moderate center uh, of the Republican Party has has somewhat disappeared. Um, but And you look at examples of Trump's behavior, like his attacks on, oh, let's pick one. How about his attacks on Admiral McRaven? That had to be infuriating for you, as I know it was for me. What are, what are your thoughts on that? Well, it is infuriating. I mean, you know, just when you think that Trump cannot sink any lower, he goes there. Uh, I mean, last weekend, I actually wrote a piece about how Trump does not respect the American military based on the fact that he skipped a visit to this uh, war cemetery in France because there were a few raindrops uh, and other things that he had done, you know, including blaming uh, the, uh, the Thousand Oaks shooters rampage on his service in Afghanistan, which is something that veterans hate, hate to hear. Uh, but now, you know, he doubles down basically in insulting the military and and going after Admiral McRaven, one of our greatest war heroes. And by the way, somebody who is fighting leukemia as we speak. I mean, this truly is a president with no sense of decency or propriety. I mean, this is somebody who got five draft deferments during the Vietnam War and, you know, ever since has been attacking 
our greatest war heroes like John McCain or, or Bill McRaven simply because they criticize that something that, uh, that, that Trump does. I mean, this is an indication of how intensely solipsistic he is. Everything is all about him, him, him. Nothing else matters. So anybody who praises Trump as good, anybody who criticizes him as bad, even if that person is happens to be a, a hero and a, and, a, and a fantastic individual like Admiral McRaven, it's, it's, it's disgusting. And the only thing worse than what Trump has done is the fact that the Republican Party is falling in the line behind him. And you mm-hmm. had the official RNC Twitter account attacking Admiral McRaven today. I mean, this is this is just so obscene. Words words really fail me here. It's uh, it's again. It just I look at the Republican Party and go, who are these people? It's unrecognizable. Uh, you know, I I considered myself a movement conservative from the time I was 18 years old. I came to political age during Clinton during the 90s with the Republican Revolution and Newt Gingrich and and those rip roaring times and. Just to see where we've come. Could you imagine the Republican Party of just even four years ago stay, sitting, standing by silent as the president of the United States attacked war heroes and attacked our military the way that Trump does? Could you imagine? I mean, the, the Republicans had a heart attack when Barack Obama saluted a Marine with a, with a latte in his hand. Right, exactly. <laughs> and, and, you know, a scandal in the Trump administration or in the, in the Obama administration was where uh, President Obama showed up in a tan suit, right. uh, and or you know put his feet up on the on the desk in the Oval Office, and you know the stuff that Republicans uh, accept from Donald Trump without any criticism was just staggering. It's unbelievable uh, because clearly they didn't mean it when they talked about how much they revere the military, and uh, clearly it's just nonsense when Republicans fell in behind Trump and attacked those NFL players for kneeling during the playing of the anthem, which they claimed was disrespectful to not just the country and the flag, but specifically to the military. And this is, you know, this is how Trump shows his respect for the military by, you know, ignoring Veterans Day, by skipping a war cemetery, by attacking uh, the former SEAL commander. Uh, I, I, I really don't understand how how Republicans can rationalize this in their minds, but clearly they they find a way. Every time we think it can't get any worse, it does. Another example of that uh, post midterms, because it's almost like you know before Christ. At this point, I think a point in time is after Trump got elected and post midterms. I think post Comey is probably another point in time where we can talk about how Trump's behavior um, has shifted for the worse. What do you think about what's happening with the acting attorney general? I mean, it's no shock, and I've talked about this before, it's no shock that Jeff Sessions got fired. He was a dead man walking for quite some time. But this new guy that he put in there, this Matthew Whitaker, is bad news. And it, it really put you know shivers down a lot of people's spines in the legal community, especially constitutional lawyers. Um, and it looks like there are Democrat, Senate Democrats who are suing now, claiming that Whitaker's uh, appointment was unconstitutional. What do you see from your perspective as the biggest threat that the Whitaker appointment poses? And do you think that this is just Trump's way of trying to 86 the Mueller investigation once and for all? Yeah, I mean, Trump basically admitted as much when he was interviewed by the Daily Caller last week and he's asked about Whitaker and he immediately went on a tirade about how this is a witch hunt, it's an illegal investigation, et cetera, et cetera. Pretty much the same thing that he did after he fired Comey. 
and he admitted to Lester Holt that he did it because he wanted to stop the investigation of the Russia thing. So he's basically admitting in plain sight that he is committing obstruction of justice. And it's clear that Whitaker has no legal qualifications to be attorney general. And he may not even have uh, the legal right to be attorney general because he has not been confirmed by the Senate for any position. And obviously, the reason why Trump put him in there is to do something about the Mueller investigation. And of course, Trump's big beef with Jeff Sessions had to do with the fact that Sessions uh, would not protect Trump from investigation, which there's no way under the law that Sessions could possibly do that. So Sessions was following the law and Trump essentially fired him for following the law. I mean, you know, Trump does says and does so many outrageous things. And we were just talking about his attacks on, on Bill McRaven, which are obviously getting a lot of attention today, and rightfully so. But we got to keep in mind what what's most important here. And I think Trump's attack on the rule of law is truly the most dangerous yes. and damaging thing that he is doing. And that's something where the, the consequences are just incalculable, you know, if, if he gets away with this. I think that's something that a lot of us prior to his election really were concerned about the most because he he all he never really treated the law as something that warranted respect. I mean, he was one of the most litigious individuals in America during his time as a businessman. He did everything to cheat and skirt this and that and get over on this and that and would sue and use the, you know, I would call, I called him a vexatious litigant because he would sue everybody for everything or threaten to do so and then not pay his lawyer's fees. But it was no, it was, that was another aspect of his personality and his record that was concerning to people. We're like, you think this is going to change when he becomes the most powerful person in the world? You think he gives two shits about the Constitution? He can't spell Constitution, you know? I mean, right. And yet here, yeah. here Republicans, uh, again, continue to enable. Yeah, and, you know, at some point, it's almost hard to be mad at Trump because, you know, mm-hmm. he's like a little elementary school kid who acts up. And I mean, he actually acts like an elementary school kid when he is making a potty joke about uh, Congressman Adam Schiff's name, right? Right. Spelling it as Adam shit. Ha ha. Right. I, uh, I know. So he... I had to read that twice. I was like, wait, is this a joke? Because you know how there's like those, there's those parody accounts out there that, that yeah. have like one letter different than Donald Trump's actual Twitter. I, I thought for sure that was a parody account. And, and, and then to my dismay, it was not. No such luck. I mean, he really acts like an out of control juvenile, basically in the Oval Office with no sense of, of decorum or respect for the office. Uh, but okay, that's Donald Trump. We, we knew who he was when he right. was elected. So how do we explain or excuse the supposed adults in Washington, including people like Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell, who have enabled him? Or, you know, Lindsey Graham, who's become a sycophant, or, or Marco Rubio, or so many others who are supposed to know better and are not standing up to him. To me, in many ways, that is the greater scandal than Trump's misbehavior. It's the fact that the Republican Party has no sense of dignity or self-respect and will allow him to get away with anything. You know, there's another aspect of this, too, that that is part of Trump's cult of personality, frankly, which is really what the party has become at this point. Um, it's just this idea of these know-nothings like promoting being ignorant, just know-nothing anti-intellectualism, like all, you know, every, you know, challenging um, Trump's lies and his manipulations and uh, with facts is somehow being an elitist or somehow it doesn't matter because you're owning the libs. And I, 
that is really frustrating to me. I, how do we combat this with people who are uninterested in what the truth actually is? I mean, to me, that is, it's a tactic. And I, I talk about this all the time and point it out, point out the fact that, you know, this was a propaganda tactic used by fascists, you know, sent a couple decades ago. That's just in a new form. You know, it's lipstick on a pig right now, but it's still a pig. But people right. are buying it in America. Right. No, it's profoundly disturbing. And I mean, thank goodness that we have the judiciary. Thank goodness we have checks and balances, because if it was just up to Donald Trump and the Republican Party, they would be uh, an authoritarian movement already. You know, or if it were up to them, Trump would be a dictator and, and Republicans would happily fall in behind him. That, that says something very disturbing about, you know, what's in the minds of the Republican Party. But again, thank goodness, this is only a minority of the country. And we saw in the midterm election, you know, 55% of the country repudiated Trump, repudiated the Republican Party there. I think most people are as disgusted as we are about what's going on. And I think the only way you're going to get through to Republicans is by showing them that Trump is leading them towards electoral defeat, that he is not winning, winning, winning. He is, in fact, going to be the biggest loser in American politics as he leads the Republican Party to I think certain long-term destruction. Right. And that's, that was my point before the midterms where I would pain, it was, I would painstakingly say to people, listen, I've never in my life wanted Republicans to lose so badly because the only way that they will possibly course correct is if they pay a price at the ballot box. If they don't, they won't, you know, elections, people, uh, uh, politicians are single seekers of reelection. So that's the only thing that gets their damn attention. And do you think that the party has learned any lessons from the midterms? Because the way it doesn't seem like it when you have Jim Jordan saying that the party wasn't Trumpy enough. That's why right. that's why they lost. I said, Jesus, like, <laughs> that's what that's the lesson you guys learned. I guess it's going to take more destruction. Right. Yeah, that was uh, that was certainly Trump's lesson about crowing about how Mia Love didn't show me any love, and so she lost, even though now it looks like Mia Love yeah. actually won. But I mean, the notion that that Republicans would have done better in these suburban swing districts by tying themselves closer to Trump is ludicrous. I mean, the only way they could have saved themselves possibly is by being way more critical of Trump than they dared to be, because they were all so petrified that Trump would intervene in their primaries and and cost them the, the nomination. Uh, but you're right, I don't see much evidence of learning right now, in part because, you know, the, the Republicans who are left in Washington tend to be the more Trumpier ones uh, who are in the safer districts. Uh, the more moderate ones have are getting called out. Uh, and so you're having this core of the Republican Party solidify around Trump. And they still have the same concerns as they had before, which is they're primarily terrified of their primary electorates in the way that Trump can mobilize uh, their primary voters against them. And so they're all too scared to turn against Trump because he still has 80 to 90% support among the Republican base, but that base is shrinking. And right. ultimately this is going to be, this is, this is not going to be a, uh, a happy voyage for the Republican party to Trump land. And it's starting to look as though it's becoming regional. I mean, I'm from New Jersey and my home state of New Jersey uh, lost three or four Republican seats. There's one Republican member of Congress now left in the state of New Jersey. No Republicans other than Susan Collins in the entire Northeast, New England. California, which I know you grew up in California, right? 
Yeah, I grew up in Southern California when it was Reagan country in the 1980s. Right. And now, you know, I think the whole California House delegation, 53 members, I think something like seven or eight of them are Republicans now. And there's not a single Republican left in Orange County, which is the cradle of the modern conservative movement. So that kind of tells you where we are. That's right. Reagan, Nixon. I mean, it, it's pretty remarkable. Um, and, and many people know, many of my listeners know that I, I worked for Congressman Dana Rohrabacher for many years. And um, I had my disagreements with Dana, uh, particularly on Russia, as I'm sure you did as well. Uh, even when I worked for him, I did not completely agree on his position with Russia, but it was tenable at the time because he thought that we could at least have some relationship with them in order to fight the war on terror and other strategic interests. Um, I personally, I left his office in 2013, and after that is, is really when Putin became... Um, even well, his his ambitions became even more untenable uh, with the invasion of Crimea and what happened in Ukraine and, and other acts and obviously the meddling in our elections. And I just never understood why Dana maintained his position supporting that. And it cost him his seat. I mean, 30, he had that seat for 30 years and he was beloved by most people. He was quirky, you know, he but he was always well intentioned. And, and to see him lose the way he did, it just it, it you know, it hurt me a little bit because it, it didn't have to go that way, but he was his own worst enemy, unfortunately, and the voters of Orange County had enough. Yeah, I don't I mean, know if we'll ever get it back. I mean, that's something I never expected to see, a Putin Republican, but but Dana was a Putin Republican. I know. Uh, but, I mean, what's happened in Orange County, I think, is significant beyond Orange County, because what's happened there is that Orange County has become more minority, and Republicans have alienated minorities, and, of course, it's also a, a pretty prosperous uh, area with a lot of college-educated voters, and Republicans are alienating college-educated ed voters. Um, and, you know, this is obviously a suburban area, and Republicans are alienating the suburbs. And so the Republican Party is really becoming the party of grumpy old white people living in rural areas. But <laughs> the, country, the country is moving against those grumpy right. white people. There's just not going to be as many of them 20 years from now as there are today. And there's fewer now than there were 20 years ago. So uh, this is not a sustainable uh, trajectory for the Republican Party because they're 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 marooned on a shrinking island of white voters. That's right. Um, the demographics in not only Orange County, just the whole country um, are not favorable for Republicans if they keep this up. It's just not. Um, before we get into your into your book, um, what what has stuck out to you? as the most alarming thing that Trump has done um, since the election, uh, since the midterms? Would you say it's the his further attacks on, on Mueller, claiming that, you know, going back, doubling down on it's a hoax and, and, and installing Whitaker? Is it the attacks on the free press again, what they try to do to Jim Acosta, our CNN colleague? Um, what has stuck out to you? as the most alarming at this point now? I mean, obviously there's a litany of things that have happened thus far, but now that we're moving into, you know, phase two of Trump's uh, first term, what are you looking at now that's concerning you the most? Well, I think the most alarming thing since the election, hands down, no doubt about it, is firing Sessions and replacing him with Whitaker because that goes beyond crass or uncouth comments that even goes beyond his attack on the free press, uh, which I think is, is pretty alarming in and of itself. But I think, you know, the attack on the rule of law and the independence of the Justice Department, his attempt to shut down the Mueller investigation, 
by proxy. I mean, this is a clear and present danger uh, to the very foundation of our government. So this is something that that needs we need to focus on and we need to combat in the way that uh, Democratic senators are trying to do now by filing a lawsuit to uh, to prevent Whitaker from from being recognized. So for people who are just casually paying attention and they go, well, why do we care about this? You know, what's the big deal with, with Mueller and this investigation? There's all these different players and different things that happen all the time. Why should people pay attention to this? Why should the American people care what's going on with the Mueller investigation and Trump? Well, this goes back to the very foundation of, of what kind of country this is. I mean, this reminds me of what Archibald Cox said after he was fired by Richard Nixon and during the Watergate scandal, where he said, you know, it will be up to Americans to decide if we are a nation of laws or of men. And ultimately, uh, in 1973, 1974, the law prevailed. Uh, Republicans deserted Nixon in the end and forced his resignation under threat of impeachment. But now it's, you know, it's it's a very live question. Will, will the rule of law prevail or not? And I think that's what's at stake here with the Justice Department, Whitaker and and Mueller, and that's why I think it's so imperative that um, Mueller be forced out and, and we get a Senate-confirmed uh, attorney general in place as soon as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, I had uh, David Prison uh, talking about his new book uh, about um, how to get rid of a president, and he we were talking about Nixon and other instances in history, instances where... Um, presidents were either emasculated, so they became ineffective, or impeached. And we've never actually had a president that was convicted and removed by the Senate, right? Um, Do you think that if Donald Trump got impeached and convicted by the Senate, or that it looked like it, I mean, it doesn't look like it, this is obviously a clear hypothetical, but do you think he would actually leave I don't think he actually would. Like Nixon knew what was coming down the pike, and as as disastrous as he was, disastrous as he was, he at least knew to to resign before it got any worse. I don't see Donald Trump ever doing that. Well, the only way that would happen is if you had Republicans turn against them, because you know obviously you need sixty-seven votes in the Senate right. to remove a president, and at the moment it's very very hard to imagine any impeachment motion coming anywhere close to that. But I think a lot depends on, on the actual what the actual facts are and what, what Mueller uncovers. Uh, and we don't know what he has. And, I mean, I, even if he uncovers horrible wrongdoing by Trump, he's still probably not going to get uh, enough Republicans on board to actually remove Trump. But uh, under those circumstances, Demo- if Democrats move an impeachment motion and there is a sense in the country at large in public opinion that Trump has done something horribly wrong and the Republicans are obstructing justice on his behalf, even if the Democrats fail to remove him, I think that is something that could redound to their benefit. The only way that I think impeachment would be a disaster for him is if it's a repetition of the Bill Clinton situation where the sense in the country was that the impeachment was basically frivolous. It was over mm-hmm. lying about sex, which people, most people didn't think should be a cause for removing a president. And, and so I think that that hurt the Republican standing. But, uh, th- I mean, th- there are much more serious uh, issues at play here. Right, that's right. And with that, let, let's, let's talk about your book. Um, I, and I, I really enjoyed uh, reading this book because I, I felt a, a lot of, I felt myself nodding a lot in agreement because I, I understand 
your journey <laughs> um, from from being a movement conservative to now basically you don't like you to even call yourself a conservative anymore. You call yourself a classic liberal, right? Right. Um, because of how the how corrosive the conservative movement has become. Um, tell talk a little bit about what 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 got you into conservatism because I don't think a lot of people realize that you came here uh, as a young child from the Soviet Union. Exactly right, and I write about this in my book, how I came here in 1976 at age six, and you know, like a lot of immigrants from communist countries, whether it's the Soviet Union or Vietnam or Cuba, I was naturally drawn to the most anti-communist. Uh, political party in America, which was obviously the Republican Party. And I really thrilled to Ronald Reagan's moral clarity when he called out the Soviet Union as the evil empire, when he said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. And, you know, I, but I wasn't just an anti-communist or uh, somebody who was in favor of democracy. I was, I kind of bought the whole conservative package ever since, you know, I was 13 years old and my father got me a subscription to National Review. I, I grew up reading National Review. I became you know, uh, uh, that that became my worldview. I I became a conservative columnist at, at the University of California at Berkeley and then went to work for the Wall Street Journal editorial page and then wrote for the Weekly Standard and commentary, served as a foreign policy advisor to three Republican presidential candidates. So, you know, I think it's fair to say that I was a made guy in the, in the conservative movement. So sure. it's, it's very disorienting for me to see what's happened to conservatism and the Republican Party in the last few years. I, I just never imagined that it would come to this. And I, and I guess that just shows you how naive I was or how little I understood uh, other people on the right, uh, because they've clearly revealed themselves to be something other than what I thought they were. You know, um, I, I don't think that it was naivety, because, again, like people like myself and Bill Crystal and you know, the, the others who are never Trumpers who were part of that conservative movement and who were, you know, Bill Buckleyites. I consider myself a Buckley conservative. The National Review was also very influential in my conservative um, maturation. I, and I think about how Bill Buckley would feel, what he would say today. And um, something that sticks with me is in during this fight, you know, as those of us like yourself, um, as we continue to fight for the soul of this country and the soul of the Republican Party, I think of Bill Buckley's words where he says that conservatives were supposed to be the ones who, you know, stand athwart history yelling stop when no one else would. And and it looks like, you know, that, that that's the cross that we have to bear. But the people who we thought would bear that haven't. And that's so terribly disappointing. Who, who has been the most disappointing thus far for you? I know for me, I, I listed Paul Ryan. I think Marco Rubio is also another one who I supported, and I know that you you advised during the campaign, and you've been critical of, of Rubio lately, but who has been the most disappointing for you, where you're just like, are you serious with this yeah, Trump stuff? <laughs> yeah, there's been a lot of people, including you know, some people just I know personally, friends of mine in the, in the conservative movement, but in terms of major leaders, um, I would certainly point out, as you have, Paul Ryan, uh, Marco Rubio, and I would also say Lindsey Graham, because I had respect for all those guys, and I thought that they were all about something more than just party loyalty. I thought that they actually had some real principles, which, you know, for example, I never thought about Mitch McConnell. I'm not really disappointed in Mitch McConnell, because right. he's just a political power player. I mean, he's all about getting and accumulating power, and 
So I'm not surprised that he's acting this way. But I am surprised and dismayed with with people like Paul Ryan and, and, and Marco Rubio and Lindsey Graham, who I thought were better than this. And they're not. And it's depre it's depressing at times, you know, because um, I was in South Carolina during the primary when uh, Marco Rubio, Tim Scott, and Nikki Haley were all on stage together. And this was before Rubio dropped out and before Trump had locked up the nomination. And, and I stood in that room almost misty-eyed looking at what the future of not only the party, but what the country could have been with leaders like them. And I thought, yes, finally, and all the Republicans are, you know, we're, we're getting it. This is how we expand the tent. This, these are the messengers that we need, you know, instead of the old grumpy white guys. And it all came crashing down <laughs> only a couple of weeks later. And, and just to see, you know, all of them, you know, Rubio, I don't know what he's doing. Nikki Haley, at least she did a decent job. Do you think that Nikki Haley did a decent job as UN ambassador? Yeah, I think she did. I think she's one of the few people who has survived a tenure in the Trump administration, basically undamaged. Uh, which speaks to what a skillful politician she is. But I suspect that uh, she was smart enough to get out while the going was good uh, and not risk her reputation by serving too long. Right. That's right. I think she's one of the few that is came out unscathed as, as best as you can in this in the circumstances. Um, also, in your book, you you talk about there's there's a chapter called the cost of capitulation. And I often talk about this. And I know Tom Nichols has also talked about it, and he was a guest here on Honestly Speaking, too, a couple of weeks ago, where we have all, the common denominator, I think, for all of us is that we believe that none of what's happening today, any of these, quote, policy wins or Supreme Court justices that conservatives point to as the reasons why they support Trump, none of it is worth it, given what the long-term damage is potentially going to be. And I think in your chapter, The Cost of Capitulation, you outline a bunch of areas where it's it's troubling to you that this is what it's costing the country. You want to talk about a couple of what those things are? What do you think the cost of capitulation is? Well, I think it's, it's very high. And, and as you suggest, far outweighs the benefits of the Trump presidency. Uh, you know, and when, when Bill Clinton was president, conservatives complained about how you know, even though the economy was going great, he was damaging the moral tone of the country. And, you know, if Bill Clinton was damaging the moral tone of the country, what is Donald Trump doing? I mean, <laughs> right. B Bill Clinton was was like a monk compared to Donald Trump uh, on all and, on all levels, <laughs> on all levels. Yeah. I mean, this is a guy who, you know, paid off a porn star and a playboy playmate and violated federal campaign finance laws to do so. I mean, he is basically an unindicted co-conspirator in the crimes that his uh, that his uh, attorney Cohen. pleaded guilty to, mm -hmm. Michael Cohen. I mean, imagine what Republicans would be saying if this were President Clinton in office and her national security advisor, campaign manager, deputy campaign manager, and personal lawyer all pleaded guilty to felonies. Right? I mean, imagine how Republicans would be hyperventilating if that were the case. But it actually is the case today. Oh, right. uh, and this is just the most lawless, dishonest administration in American history. And it's also a president who has been more blatant in playing to racism and xenophobia than anybody I have seen in American politics in my lifetime. Uh, and in his attacks on minority groups, his conspiracy mongering, uh, you know, we saw what that kind of climate 
uh, of hostility leads to with the uh, mail bomb attacks by one of his followers with the massacre in the Pittsburgh synagogue. And Donald Trump refused to apologize or back down after any of that. I mean, he said, I'm not going to tone it down. I may tone it up. And basically he did. Um, so, you know, I think he is doing great damage to American standing in the world and to our institutions and our society in, in culture at home. And I think it'll take a long time to undo that damage. You talk about um, how you felt on election night. And that was something that I kind of had to chuckle to myself because <laughs> I, I felt the exact same way. Um, in, in, in your book, you say you talk about how on the next day, you say the dawn of what I felt was a new Annis Horribilis. <laughs> Yeah. You said that uh, at the age of 47, I became an independent. Politics is a team sport. Suddenly I was without a team. I was politically homeless. In an instant, I felt alienated from some of my oldest friends and fellow travelers, conservatives with whom I had been in one fight after another over the past quarter century. How was it possible that 90% of Republicans had supported a charlatan who had only recently been a Democrat and who had few fixed convictions outside of narcissism and nativism and sexism and racism. How did we get here? That's another chapter that you talk about in, um, in your book. You talk about the surrender. What do you think though? Did you, what signs do you think we all missed? Cause so many of us got it wrong. Well, I think there were signs, which largely I saw in retrospect. I mean, I, I sort of saw them at the time, I guess, but I didn't think that they were that significant, you know, right. including the rise of, Fox News, Sarah Palin, the Tea Party, Ted Cruz, the fact that Donald Trump was going around peddling this crazy birtherism conspiracy theory, I never thought that was significant. But it turns out that a lot of people in the Republican Party actually like that kind of stuff. Um, and, you know, going in, in the course of writing this book, I kind of went back and looked at the history of the modern conservative movement and, and realized the extent to which uh, conservative leaders of the past, like Phyllis Schlafly and Barry Goldwater, had trafficked in some of the same kind of extremism and conspiracy mongering as Donald Trump. But I think what had happened in the last two decades was that there was an attempt to kind of push the the bigots and the conspiracy mongers to the fringes of the conservative movement. And certainly the Republican presidents who actually took office or, or even won the nomination were much more moderate, much more centrist. And so I think I was kind of living in a fool's paradise, imagining that somebody like Mitt Romney or John McCain represented the real heart of the Republican Party. And clearly, a lot of people are thrilled to to Donald Trump because he is the opposite of a McCain or Romney, people of impeachable, unimpeachable character. I mean, he is somebody who is basically a scoundrel and doesn't make any bones about it and who engages in horrible, uh, demeaning immoral behavior. And a lot of Republicans love that. I mean, I don't know what that says about them, but they do. Right. And, and um, I caught myself asking a question that you ask during, during the course of your book, where you say, you know, was I a part of this? Like where in retrospect, do I look, you know, I look back and think about was I, did I contribute to this? Did I just turn a blind eye? Like, you know, as you just said, and, and I found myself doing that. Because I'm like, it obviously this was there. How did, you know, more prominent than I realized, I guess. Um, in your evolution to where you are now, um, what main issues do you think that you've evolved on the most? 
I know you've been very outspoken about gun control, which is something that is anathema to the conservative movement. You know, we're all Second Amendment patriots and anything less than that. It's kind of like the pro-life movement. There's no, you know, there's no gray area. It's either you are or you're not or you're not a, you know, a good patriot. Um, right. yeah, conservatives aren't such big fans of the First Amendment, but they love the Second Amendment. Right. That's right. Um, has it been gun control? Has it been what? What issue do you think you've evolved on the most? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I would say to some extent, it's not even so much that I've evolved is that I've kind of started speaking out on these issues because I used to define my role, you know, fairly narrowly as a national security guy. And so I didn't really mm -hmm. focus on these other issues. I kind of rolled my eyes at some of the stuff I heard from Republicans. But I thought, you know, hey, I, 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 I don't need to say anything. This is the price of party unity. They do their thing. I do my thing. It's a big tent, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, with the rise of Trump, I basically said, screw it. I'm not right. making any sacrifices to be in the tent anymore. I'm just going to let it rip and say what I think. And uh, so, you know, I've tried to take, you know, a very empirical fact-based approach to to policy. And, you know, when I look at an issue like gun control, I can't see any issue, any any reason why everybody should be able to run around with a military-grade assault rifle. I mean, no less a conservative than Ronald Reagan himself endorsed the 1994 assault weapon ban that passed Congress in the Clinton administration. Um, and yet now anybody who suggests that maybe we should stop the sale of, of assault weapons is derided as a, you know, as a rhino or as a threat to our liberties or, or what have you. I mean, to my mind, this is just an example of how extreme the Republican Party has gotten. And it's not just Trump. I mean, there's uh, he's he's in many ways more a symptom than a cause of of this absolutism and extremism. Uh, have have you seen the uh, the new Roger Ailes documentary Divide and Conquer? No. Um, it, you should. I saw a screening of it recently, and it's remarkable with the rise of of Roger Ailes and the parallels and, and Fox News and the parallels that it has to the rise of Trump. I think you mm. will find it. Very interesting. So if you have the opportunity, you should you should watch it. Yeah, I'll look for that. Yeah. yeah, it's um, it's one of the it's it it has to do with kind of not appealing to our better angels and 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 using demagoguery and on certain issues like that one and others to kind of rile people up and um, that to me was just the kindling for the fire that was lit to, that created the Trump you know the Trump phenomenon and. Roger Ailes played an interesting role in that more than I ever realized. Um, well, that this is great. And um, as we wrap up, I, I, I always like to ask, especially guys as smart as you that know global affairs, who have dedicated their lives to um, geopolitical strategy and, and analysis, um, what keeps you up at night, given the current state of affairs? Well, what worries me the most is the state of our democracy. I mean, if you'd asked me that a few years ago, I would have said it's Islamist terrorism or maybe the threat of Russia or China. But now it's really the attack on our democracy, not just our democracy. This is all across the West. You're seeing democracy under siege. You know, we've already seen democracies destroyed in places like Turkey and Russia and Egypt. Now you're seeing democracy corroding in places like Poland, Hungary and the Philippines. Uh, and it's happening right here at home. Uh, the democratic norms that are being assaulted by by Trump and his followers, I think, is is very alarming. And it, there's this populist authoritarian assault on 
on liberal democracy, which is, I think, the big battle for our times. And that's something where I think people on both the center left and the center right need to unite and, and realize that our uh, policy differences fade into insignificance compared to this larger threat to our democracy. And, and so I think we need to link arms and to defend not just the laws and the Constitution, but also the norms of American democracy that Donald Trump is, is undermining and assaulting. So how do people do that? Now that everyone is thoroughly depressed <laughs> that, the, that the country's going to hell in a handbasket and democracy is under assault, um, I still think that there is power in focusing on the shining city on the hill analogy that Ronald Reagan talked about in his, in his farewell address and the importance of, 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 of us, like you said, linking arms. How, what is your, your parting message to people who are saying, uh, what, what do we do? What, well, what the hell do we do now? Well, I think we need to organize in various ways. I mean, I'm involved in a little startup nonprofit called the Renew Democracy Initiative, along with Gary Kasparov and Brett Stevens, Ann Applebaum, mm -hmm. and many others of both the center left and center right. And there's a bunch of similar groups that are springing up all over the place. I think we need to try to mobilize the 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 vital center, the forgotten center of American politics. I think that's where our future lies. I mean, I'm somebody who's on the center right, and I feel very much politically homeless at the moment. I think we need to take back our political system from the extremists of both the left and the right who are empowered by the way uh, the political system currently works. So I think, you know, get involved uh, and, and, and try to push for more uh, centrist candidates who can win. I think that's, that's the number one imperative right now. And I think the results of the midterm elections give us hope that when people pay attention and they get involved, that change can be made. So it's not all bad, everybody. It's not all no, bad. No, absolutely. Can, <laughs> I mean, and, and I think the midterms were a pretty resounding rejection of Trump and the Republican Party, and that's something we can build on. Right. So if so, do you think the party can be built? I mean, you, you've talked about how you think it needs to burn to the ashes and then rebuilt from there. So do you, I, I still think there's a chance. I get discouraged every once in a while where I'm going, I don't know if this is, if this is irreparable or what, but I still think there's a glimmer of hope. I think there is hope, but, the, but I think there has to be some more destruction and defeat yeah. for the Republican Party because I think the Republicans who are still around, are, a lot of them in Washington, are still in denial about what's going on. And I think a lot of them are, are hoping that Trump will pull another rabbit out of the hat and somehow prevail in 2020. So I think it's imperative that everybody who feels as we do works to make sure that doesn't happen. Do you think there's any viable challenger on the Republican side to Trump in 2020, or is it only going to be a Democrat? I think there are viable challengers, depending on how you define viability. <laughs> I mean, I think it's, you never know. Uh, let me just say that first, because sure, right now he's got 80, 90 percent support of Republicans. And so there's no Republican who could possibly take away the nomination. But, you know, imagine if we're in a recession and or if Mueller delivers a devastating report, the political landscape may look very different. But even if it doesn't look all that different, I still think uh, that there is a need for a Republican primary challenger to fly the flag of our principled conservatism. And even if that person loses, their cause can still win in the long run. Right, right. It's going to be a fascinating two years. As if, you know, it hasn't been a hell of a ride so far. <laughs> I always say buckle up, folks. The next two years are going to be... craziness is not over. It's, it's, getting, not. it's getting worse. It's not. 
Max Boot, thank you so much. I encourage everyone to check out The Corrosion of Conservatism, Why I Left the Right by Max Boot. Thank you so much for your time and uh, keep up the great work. Thanks for having me and, and keep up the good fight as I know you will. Thank you. We're, we're in this together. <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks, Max. With the holidays just around the corner, now is the time to order holiday cards for family and friends. This year, create custom holiday photo cards quickly, easily, and affordably at simplytoimpress.com. Simplytoimpress.com is your holiday photo card headquarters with thousands of unique Christmas cards and other designs to choose from. All you do is upload your family photos or get them from Facebook or Instagram, personalize the text, and you're done. It's really that easy. Simplytoimpress.com prints your cards professionally on your choice of premium cardstock in just a few days and rushes them straight to your door. The New York Times Wirecutter named Simply to Impress their favorite custom photo card service. Simply to Impress even offers foil cards and hundreds of great holiday card designs for your business as well. Place your order today to save 30% and get free shipping. Just enter promo code DEAL at checkout. Save big on holiday photo cards today using promo code DEAL at simplytoimpress.com. That's simplytoimpress.com. That's it for this week's edition of Honestly Speaking. Follow me on Twitter at honestly underscore Tara. That's the Honestly Speaking Twitter. My personal Twitter at Tara Setmayer and Instagram at the Tara Setmayer, where I'll be posting lots of uh, pictures from Israel. So follow along this week. I'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.